Speaking of Faith from American Public Media is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Patrick, a new look at a misunderstood saint, available on DVD. Support is also provided by the Pew Charitable Trusts, investing in ideas, returning results, pewtrusts.com, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the John Templeton Foundation. This is Speaking of Faith, conversation about belief, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, a theological perspective on cloning, a conversation with bioethicist Lori Zoloth. In 1996, a sheep named Dolly made history. She was the world's first cloned mammal. What we've done is to make a copy of an adult you, so that this is exactly the same as that animal having a, a genetically identical twin, except for the fact that one of the lambs is a few months old and the, the ewe from which we took the cell was, was already six years old. That's the voice of Dr. Ian Wilmot, one of Dolly's creators. After Dolly, the birth of a human clone seemed inevitable, though most scientists close to the field will insist that the safe cloning of a human being remains a distant possibility. Still, there are recurring reports in the news of women pregnant with babies who are copies of themselves. Here is audio from a press conference held by an organization called CloneAid on December 27, 2002. I'm very, very pleased to announce that the first baby clone is born. She's fine. We call her Eve. We have been discussing with the parents the last three months how we would handle today. And uh, they decided not to show up yet. They will. I hope they will. Clonade's claim was quickly dismissed. The purported baby Eve and her parents never came forward. But why does the idea of human cloning both fascinate and repulse, and what religious questions does it raise for our common life? This hour, we'll explore one thought-provoking perspective. Lori Zoloff is a scholar of rabbinic wisdom and director of bioethics at the Center for Genetic Medicine at Northwestern University. Her path into the far reaches of medical ethics began in what might be called the trenches of reproductive technology, as a nurse on the neonatal ward of a Philadelphia hospital when both neonatology and bioethics were just beginning. I was 19, and I unintentionally fell completely in love with neonatal intensive care, which was the care and treatment of premature babies and sick babies, um, a field that was just beginning to be invented at that time because there was at that point very little we could do for babies who were born prematurely. And then really rapidly within the first few years, they developed ways of putting babies on ventilators. And then the question emerged, as it was emerging in intensive care medicine, since we can save lives, ought we to save lives? And for what are we saving lives? And with the very tiny preemies, we began wondering about the quality of life, about could you, you can put a baby on a ventilator, but could you get a baby off a ventilator? And, and it was just then that the field of clinical ethics began to grapple with the same hard problems at the adult level and in the courts with the Karen Ann Quinlan case, with, the, with a series of cases about this issue. Because we can, ought we? And that was the animating issue for the first years of bioethics. Karen Ann Quinlan was a young woman who lapsed into a persistent vegetative state after apparently overdosing on alcohol and tranquilizers in 1975. Her personal tragedy became an early case study for the new field of bioethics when her family sued to have her removed from life support. Ironically, she survived in a coma for 10 years after they won the case and the ventilator was removed. Over time, that question of early bioethics, when does life end, has led to the equally vexing question, when does life begin? Human cloning would mimic the basic reproductive act. But rather than uniting a sperm and an egg, it would take an unfertilized egg and replace its nucleus with human DNA. The resulting embryo could, in theory, grow into a copy of that human being. Much of the focus in our public life is on the use of cloned human embryos for biomedical research, but that is not our topic for today. We'll consider cloning for the purposes of producing offspring. 
Some dream that this technology might make it possible to preserve the DNA of a beloved child or adult who has died, in a sense bringing them back to life. Lori Zoloth has spent a lot of time thinking about how ancient Jewish tradition approaches the notion of justice in birth and in death. She says that as early as the birth of the sheep Dolly, religious ethicists missed a remarkable chance to frame the cloning debate. The whole world turned to them for help in understanding the implications of cloning, how it might change our ideas about creation and procreation. But Zoloth says she and her colleagues began their answers in the wrong place. She suggests that cloning is not really about life and birth at all. The usual move in looking at a new scientific technique is to think about the science and to think about what it reminds us of. And of course, when cloning first emerged on the scene, it was about the birth of, well, sheep (laughs) and by extrapolation (laughs) persons. And so people busily began to look at the religious laws and norms that surrounded birth, the reproduction. My thought was it was the wrong, it was the wrong ground. Mm -hmm. It was the the wrong arena. That was the arena of reproductive medicine, and that cloning was not about reproductive medicine. If it was about children, we'd think about messy eight-year-olds. We'd think about foster children who need desperately to be in safe and and loving homes, or, or why children of color aren't adopted in this country, what's going on with that. I don't think the debate's about children. I began thinking about what the debate was really about, and I began looking at texts that suggested that it was about death, Mm-hmm. I was pointing in this direction because many of the people who had justified cloning talked about it in terms of the loss of a beloved child right. or a beloved person, that it was a way to overcome death of a particular person. And it's a way that inspires sympathy and compassion in the person right. uh, listening to that. And for instance, a good justification might be the reclamation of the DNA of of an entirely lost family in the Shoah, in the Holocaust. Mm. And whenever we begin to use those metaphors and those examples, I think we're pulling in something very different from merely having a baby, giving an infertile couple a chance to have a child. I think we're pulling in some way to reclaim lost history, a lost self or lost selves, And that's calling on many other different theological tasks for this technique. And that's when I began thinking about, this is about death. This is not about birth. Well, the other thing about those ways of coming at it, it sounds sort of irresistibly ethical and good and moral, and it it seems to question the motives of anyone who would want to reflect on it with with other complexity. It's a hard thing to say to grieving family members, you can't overcome death. The, the central tragedy, the central tragedy of mortality is a tragedy that can't be fixed medically in this way. And it's a terrible loss for all, but it's a real loss. It's the central loss of human life. It's that which we have religion for. Cloning thrown into that debate, of course, gets complexly intertwined with those yearnings. And it it's interesting because, of course, it's the it's the great yearning of Passover. It, one reads on the on Shabbat Hagadol the 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 yearning the dry bones could be reknit and could come mm. back, and the valley could be full of life again. It's the yearning, of course, of the the central story of the cross that that death has no dominion, right. but death does for us have an absolute quality in terms of the loss of the particular individual self. From Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me round among them, and behold, there were very many upon the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, thou knowest. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, 
And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling. The bones came together, bone to its bone. And as I looked, there were sinews upon them, and the flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great host. A reading from the prophetic biblical book of Ezekiel. Lori Zoloth also finds tools for bioethics in Jewish mystical lore. One compelling story is the rabbinic legend of the golem. This is in some sense the original Frankenstein story. The telling and retelling of this story amounts to a centuries-long reflection on what it would mean to create a human being. And it is always a fable on the limits of human wisdom and power. In our time, writers like Cynthia Ozick, Marge Piercy, and Elie Wiesel have reflected on contemporary problems through the Golem story. Jewish wisdom is also, of course, documented in the ancient rabbinic dialogue of the Talmud. In such sources, Lori Zoloth grounds her reverence for language and narrative, and she finds in them rich metaphors for her work in genetics, the language of life. In traditional rabbinic texts, while you don't find laws about cloning, obviously, you find a great many stories about the creation of life, of human, of human, what seem to be human persons. There is a strong tradition in the Talmud of rabbinic magic and one of the many foci of the rabbinic um, magical impulse is to say, could we make things? <laughs> could we make a cow? Could we make a person? Could and there's we also this have a field of cucumbers. This tradition of golem building. This well, there's that tradition of the golem. The this notion that if you could use the pattern of letters in a lost book, the the book of life, if you could manipulate those letters, which is hauntingly. Um, familiar for someone who thinks about DNA and mm. and the manipulation therein. Could you make a human person? Could you make a man? Could you make a go- this golem? And the rabbis of the Talmud de- have this debate, and then they say, yes, you could, and only your moral inequities, your your imperfections morally would keep you from being able to do it. So, And in later medieval literature, when Jews need a big, powerful sort of person Often a golem is made and then enables the Jews to resist a kind of oppression. And again, the stakes are life and death. And will the Jewish community, in this case, overcome a death by the use of this other force, this golem force, that's both very powerful and terribly dangerous because, again, of the unhitching of the man from morality. That always is where the golems go astray. Bioethicist Lori Zoloth. This is from Isaac Bashevis Singer's book, The Golem. In the attic, Rabbi Leib found the sacks with the clay and began to sculpt the figure of a man. Rabbi Leib did not use a chisel, but his fingers to carve the figure of the golem. He kneaded the clay like dough. He was working with great speed. At the same time, he prayed for success in what he was doing. All day, Rabbi Leib was busy in the attic, and when it was time for the evening prayer, A large shape of a man with a huge head, broad shoulders, and enormous hands and feet was lying on the floor, a clay giant. The rabbi looked at him in astonishment. He could never have mastered this without the help of almighty and special providence. The rabbi had taken with him the prayer book in which his saintly visitor had written down the name of God. Rabbi Leib engraved it on the forehead of the golem in such small letters that only he himself could distinguish the Hebrew characters. Immediately, the clay figure started to show signs of life. You know, I hear all the allusions to to the kinds of issues we're dealing with, but tease that out for me. Tell me how you, as a bioethicist in the 21st century, live with a tradition like this and, and how you're guided by it. That's a great question. So here I am in the 21st century, wandering down the lab, down the, um, the next building, and looking at the actual machine, you know, that can pull apart the cells, and thinking about this, and then going back and 
hauling out my volumes of the Talmud, you know, and thinking, what an interesting thing, what an interesting response. The texts that come to mind for me are the texts of this tradition, the Talmudic text and the arguments, in part because it's a complicated compilation of both law and fantasy and a moral universe constructed with, with mere story and mere language. Of course, not mere at all, but if I'm trying to think about the creation of our own moral universe, and if all we have really is words and language, then the use of story, the use of narrative, becomes quite important again. Because the laws might fail us. The laws are, in some ways, a rather impartial account of the complicated technology mm-hmm. and the complicated possibilities we're faced with. We are faced with um, what's been called fiction science, um, science that's that's just beyond the borders of our imagination. And it's at that border that I think the use of Midrashic accounts and stories might be best employed. Because it's such a fantastic idea, I think we need rather fantastic and metaphorical illusions to think about them. Bioethicist Lori Zoloth. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Lori Zoloth works on emerging issues in medical and research genetics. We're exploring today how she brings together her thought at the frontiers of reproductive technology, especially the potential technology of reproductive cloning, with the imaginative world of her Jewish faith. When I'm reading your writing about cloning and when you say what this really what we really need to be reflecting on is is our vulnerability and our limitations. I think about conversations I had in the wake of September 11th and how thoughtful religious voices at that time were also saying, "Look, this this just reminds us of something that was already true, that that we are vulnerable, that we are human, that that tragedy can happen." I don't know if this is a stretch, but I wondered if if cloning is is sort of the the equivalent of nine eleven in this in this world of of reproductive technology of our intimate experience of the beginnings of life and death. <laughs> what an interesting way to think of it. <laughs> um, I think what's interesting about that is that religion is a lot about a world that is as yet to be redeemed a world that is more still dark than light, though with the extraordinary possibility of light. And I think that's what the story of Exodus, the story of redemption is a lot about. Here, this impossible light in this great darkness. Mm -hmm. And the darkness is, of course, death, also defeat, also slavery, also the terrifying future. And the little human beings against it. So it's it's always about the human reach, slightly impossible reach against this darkness. So cloning cloning is at the far edges of that. Reproductive cloning is mm-hmm. at the far edges of that and might be over might have tumbled us over the edge into it, in which we have to just acknowledge that there are some things right now we absolutely cannot overcome. Science, on the other hand, is often about power and is often about control and is often about that sort of power that seeks to finally know and to finally name. And religion is, I think, often seen as as against that power if that power would become overweening power or hubric power. And I think that's one of the one of the tasks of the religious and prophetic voice is to raise the question of what about the vulnerable and what about what about the darkness that is yet before us and what kind of light we carry into it. What is it you say? We we need to make tangible that which is not seen in the cloning debate. And you say something, at, at stake will be the surprising stranger who will live at your side. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is the experience of parenting, right? Exactly. The experience of parenting, I suggest in that article, might be to teach us that even out of your very own body, out of the very core of your love for your partner, could come a totally surprising stranger. And nothing is more surprising and more strange than than this, A, yowling, howling, wonderful, but messy infant mm-hmm. or teenager or anyone who just isn't you. So we all, we all, the task of caring for the stranger is the, is the task of caring for the not perfect stranger. And so that's one other peculiarity of the cloning debate. 
that we try to make these strangers perfect, and we try to make them completely known. And there's something, again, peculiar about that yearning. One of the points of having children is to do the very task that we're called to do in the biblical account, love the stranger as if as if the stranger is us, when in fact the the little joke of that phrase is the stranger who is most like us, our own child, can often be the most paradoxically complicated person to love. And that is so true from life, from, from living as a parent. But what it also made me think about in terms of reproductive cloning is, is how, you know, part of the task of being human is that we are also strangers to ourselves. And the idea of of raising myself through all those different ages that I got to to be at this age, I don't think that would be less of a stranger than than my children are. Well, the interesting thing that here's a country that that tends to put um, parents in nursing homes, and there is this long complicated story of estranged families and brothers who don't speak to one another and never speak and go off. And if if DNA was that which bound us, our families would be a lot cozier and more beloved than they are. I think it's really an interesting and, and complicated point about what does likeness mean to us and what does estrangement mean for us. Sometimes people say, well, cloning's not so bad. Think of twins. And of course, you know, twins aren't clones for a variety of reasons. But again, I think that it's not about twins. I think, again, it's about recapitulating a particular a particular life story that you yearn for, either your own in a narcissistic way or someone you've loved terribly and cannot stand to be in the world without. So I think it because it awakens that in us, it becomes a theological problem, not really only a scientific one. Lori Zoloff is a professor of medical ethics and humanities and religion and director of bioethics at the Center for Genetic Medicine at Northwestern University. Today on Speaking of Faith, a theological conversation on cloning. One of the ethical issues that bioethicists see at the far horizons is the way in which cloned individuals would be received in society. Would they have a lifelong crisis of identity? What particular forms of prejudice would they awaken? And on a religious level, how would they think about creation, about the reality of their own souls? Here's a poem by the contemporary writer Fred Dings, another kind of imaginative look at the moral risks and duties of cloning. Letter to Genetically Engineered Superhumans You are the children of our fantasies of form, our wish to carve a larger cave of light, our dream to perfect the ladder of genes and climb its rungs to the height of human possibility, to a stellar efflorescence beyond all injury and disease, with minds as bright as newborn suns and bodies which leave our breathless mirrors stunned. Forgive us if we failed to imagine your loneliness in the midst of all that ordinary excellence. If we failed to understand how much harder it would be to build the bridge of love between such splendid selves, to find the path of humility among the labyrinth of your abilities, to be refreshed without forgetfulness and weave community without the threads of need. Forgive us if you must reinvent our flaws because we failed to guess the simple fact that the best lives must be less than perfect. This is Speaking of Faith. After a short break, more of my conversation with bioethicist Lori Zoloth. She suggests that the prospect of human cloning forces us to reconsider the ethical stakes of pregnancy and birth in our time. On our website at speakingoffaith.org, you'll find in-depth background, reading recommendations, and information about purchasing a copy of this program. You can also sign up for our weekly email newsletter, which includes program transcripts and my reflections on each week's program. That's speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, light for the journey. Presenting Patrick, a new look at a misunderstood saint. Narrated by Liam Neeson. 
with Gabriel Byrne as the voice of Patrick and commentary by Frank McCourt. Available on DVD. 1-800-588-VISION. You're listening to Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, conversation about belief, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Each week we explore a different theme, asking writers, thinkers, and theologians how religion shapes everyday life. Today we're exploring one thought-provoking perspective on the topic of cloning human beings. Bioethicist Lori Zoloth brings together a learned Jewish faith with her philosophical and moral consideration of the ethics of medical technologies. Human cloning is in medical terms a new ART, or Advanced Reproductive Technology. It has never been tried successfully, and at present the risks are prohibitive. But in theory, it might one day allow a couple to have a child who is a genetic copy of one of the pair. Seen in that light, this is the latest in a long line of technologies which have become part and parcel of our 21st century culture of pregnancy and birth. In 1960, the introduction of the birth control pill changed the world forever. Forty years later, neither fertility nor infertility is something modern Americans leave up to nature. I asked Lori Zoloth whether a moral debate about cloning might drive us back to reconsider the ethical stakes of all the technologies that got us here, such as contraception, artificial insemination, and in vitro fertilization. Of course. It is not a long time ago that the idea of in vitro fertilization, surrogate parenting were very strange and very, very disturbing new ideas. And now I'll bet a lot of us have friends, dear friends, who have used a variety of Mm -hmm. these techniques to create a family. And they have been an extraordinary window of opportunity, one could say, for, for women who have chosen to have children without partners, and many close and dear friends who struggled with infertility have, in fact, been able to have children. And then so one doesn't want to say that that is a bad thing. How could that be, looking at the sweet pink toes? Of exactly, looking at the babies. Looking at the babies, one's friend's babies. Of course, it, of course this could not be a bad thing or an immoral act. And yet it has placed before us a reconfiguration of the essential narrative that we see biblically, and we have to give thought to why that might be. And it might be that it's to teach us something about the mutability of ourselves and of our society, and to know that a loving family can come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. But on the other hand, there is something extraordinarily disturbing and destabilizing about the commodification and the fragmentation of the reproductive process and the way that parts of the process can be bartered, bought, Mm -hmm. sold, broken down, made less whole. And I think many, many thoughtful, both theologians and ethicists and feminist scholars, have been worried about the possibility for exploitation and coercion that might be concomitant with the idea of taking an egg or taking a sperm and and manipulating it outside of relationships, of having banks of reproductive material. The very language, I think, alerts us to the possibility of harm. And I think we have to be careful and think through, not ban or not, not do, but to make sure that there's care and there's oversight. And I guess a, 
a big handful of worry. <laughs> yeah, which you point out as as a Jewish ethicist, you are compelled to do. <laughs> compelled to worry. And so I, just to sort of worry at every single point and to say, are we sure we know what we're doing? Are the duties that we have towards each other brought into play here? Are we thinking about this carefully enough? And whenever you have the mix of women's bodies, blood, and money, I think there's a way that one worries a great deal about that. In my campus paper, the the ad that offers $10,000 for eggs whose mothers <laughs> or whose bearers have scored 1300 on the SATs certainly makes me wonder what's being bought and sold here and what sort of illusions are being traded in the magical marketplace. And it seems to me that those questions are being raised with regard to reproductive cloning, which is still really a potential technology than an, more than an actual technology, but that I don't think this deep reflection happened with things like artificial insemination, which have led to this, you know, the ads in the campus paper that you're talking about, or even in vitro fertilization, because it seemed to be serving a greater good, which was helping people have children. Mm-hmm. And because religion is so often pro-natalist, and because think of the biblical um, scriptures, the scriptural account of infertility being such a heavily vexed account. I mm-hmm. mean, we certainly we be, we begin with the story of of Sarai and Hagar, and it's such a tragedy at the very beginning around this problem of infertility. Yes. And the text tells us that the problem of infertility is is largely a problem of theology, is, is of, of one's relationship to God. And the struggle around infertility happens over and over right, and over Hannah in, in well. Genesis. Yeah. In Hannah yeah. and in, in Rachel and Leah and yeah. all of the stories of the complexities of birth. It doesn't go well for the matriarchs. Northwestern University bioethicist Lori Zoloff. A reading from the book of Samuel, chapter 1. And it came to pass upon a day when Elkanah sacrificed that he gave to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And Elkanah her husband said unto her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid and remember me and not forget thy handmaid, but will give unto thy handmaid a man-child, Then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, when the time was come about, that Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, because I have asked him of the Lord. A reading from Samuel, chapter 1. You said that infertility in the Bible is a reflection of one's relationship with God. And I wanted just to ask you to to expand on that because that kind of statement could sound dangerously like, you know, like saying that women who have gone through this agony of infertility somehow brought it on themselves or deserved it. I know know that's not what you're saying, but what are you saying? How do you reflect on those texts and these real-life situations? In the biblical text, the yearning for what one sees just beyond one's grasp is the beginning of desire. And it's that, that sense of wanting the next or the more or the fecundity of the place that a, the child would fill in the imaginations, the religious imaginations of the writers of the text or the receivers of the text. That yearning is the existential human yearning. Now, in the life of any individual person, I firmly believe that infertility, um, the ability, the inability to naturally conceive one's own children, can be answered by many, many different responses, many responses to that. 
that range from adoption, obviously, which was strongly um, put forward in the in the Talmudic and medieval texts, from teaching the extraordinary possibilities of mentorship and teaching. So there are many different answers. It's an it's a peculiarity of modernity that infertility is seen primarily as a medical problem with a medical solution. It is also that. You wrote, all reproduction is a kind of hunger, and, and that's the word that also resonated with me. And, and it is. Mm-hmm. And also, it's not just, I think, necessarily to raise a child, but to create a child of one's own with one's beloved, right? Exactly. I mean, I think there is, I think what's interesting to me, and this pertains to the issue of what it meant to be an intensive care nursery nurse and work night shift beside the the very wanted and very broken bodies of premature babies night after night and sit with their parents and watch them become a part of this complicated miracle and slash tragedy. There's something about the hunger, the reality of the hunger for children, the yearning for babies that is exquisite and and intense and I think cannot be made a trivial matter or even a selfish matter. It's often spoken of disparagingly sometimes in, in bioethics as, is, as though this is an inconsequential or a, a selfish motivation. Something and you could reason away. Something one could reason away, something one could have a, make a separate moral choice about. There's something important and central to who we are that we have and know this hunger, this yearning. It's one compelling moral appeal that I'm hauntingly aware of, but it's only, it's, there are other moral appeals, keeping societies together, not exploiting the bodies of other women, that the, the buying and selling of gametes doesn't dominate the actual process of the creation of children, that there's many other children that, that are outside this process, that need adoption, that need foster care, that need, in our own city of Chicago, a decent place to live, even good schools and good health care. So there's, there's something about the lostness of children, starting from the non-existence of children all the way to the lostness of teenagers who, you know, living on the streets, that seems to me to be a piece of the problem of what do we do when we yearn for, to raise children. And taking any piece of that seems inadequate seems religiously inadequate. And those are such important and compelling observations about the the moral quandary and and yet I can't help but acknowledge as we talk that here we are two women who've given birth to beloved biological children, right? And mm-hmm. and I wonder if you also as a bioethicist interact with women who have not been able to achieve this and and how easy is it or even is there an ethical problem in trying to talk to their pain about you know the slippery slope uh, or the larger context that's an exquisitely interesting problem and i remember i'm sitting here actually in this radio studio with my two of my children off from school next to me drawing and (laughs) aware of the miracle of of their existence and of their births one time when I was pregnant with, um, very pregnant with one of my children, I was asked to speak at a forum f- around this issue, around the issue of surrogacy and the ethics of surrogacy. And surrogacy was, was for me, the most difficult issue because it actually meant men and women using their gametes and then using the body of another almost always younger, almost always socially and economically disadvantaged relative to them woman to bear their child. And I gave a speech a little like that, eight months pregnant, (laughs) and was aware when people came to me and said in the question period, how can you possibly say this when you don't have to face this as the only way to have a child that is your genetically matched child? And that's why I think bioethics has to be grounded in the real experiences of actual women and, and men struggling with these issues, making their choices, I still felt compelled to say that I thought that there was ethical issues and ethical norms that we were in trouble with and violated um, with the use of surrogacy. Do we have the answer to this? Do we have good other ways to do it? 
Are there wonderful people who are involved in it on all sides of that equation? To be sure. But does it raise troubling issues for a society as we struggle with this stage of reproductive technology? To be sure. And I think that it is wise to then understand it as a as in part a question of faith. Bioethicist Lori Zoloth. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today we're exploring Lori Zoloth's theological perspective on human cloning. She says that in order for our culture to adequately discuss the potential for creating human life, religious voices need to frame their concerns in new ways. In recent decades, when medical processes involving the human embryo have become controversial, some Christian ethical voices have focused the debate on the rights of the embryo, insisting that an embryo has a soul and the full moral status of a human being. Lori Zoloth proposes a new framework for our common deliberation, centered on religious values that might be shared more widely, such as duty and justice. Rights, she says, are not a religious starting point for discussion. The strong Jewish tradition is it takes three to make a child. There is three in the place of the creation of a child, a man and a woman and God, and that the child's, the child's beingness, the nephishness, is a is a product of his or her relationship to God. Be that as it may, there's not a strong dualistic tradition in, in many Jewish texts. And so what's of interest, again, to the normative Jewish tradition isn't this business of soul. What's of interest is what are our duties to human persons? And when do the duties begin and when do they end? So all the, the text, again, has a different problem to solve. It's when do our duties begin? And when do our duties end at life, at the end of life and the beginning of life, even today? I think your use of the word duty is so significant because, again, what polarizes our public discussion about reproductive technologies or abortion or cloning at the extreme ends is is we tend to divide along rights. It's the right of the mother or the right of the fetus. You actually, in focusing on duties, I think, are coming at the debate in a completely different way. I think it's a more useful way to think of it. I think um, pitting maternal rights against fetal rights is not only counterintuitive, ask anyone who's pregnant (laughs) um, about that, but going about it with duty both honors the reality of what pregnancy is, mostly for most women, that it's an act of extraordinary love, and one in which the duty of being a mother begins. But it also says a duty-based system means that the community has responsibilities from the beginning, too, to protect, to nurture, to shelter a woman who is pregnant already, and then a different sort of duty once a child is born. Including if she does not desire to keep that child. Including if she does not desire to keep that child, the duty still attends upon the community. And it's that struggle to make, to, to balance personal, family, society, tribe, people that's the subject of the Hebrew text as they continue past the Genesis narrative of fecundity. I like your insistence that, especially as a Jewish ethicist, as a Jewish person, you say we are meant to be namers of the world, that that is also... First calling, yeah. <laughs> call the world into its names. Yeah. And so, you um, know, we're naming something here. And, and just that, I suppose, has a power. It's also, it's the power of ethics itself is to name and to define. The power of philosophy begins with, with knowing what to call the thing and how to define the thing and coming to terms with, do we have a shared name? And what if we really disagree? What if people who have deeply held faith positions differ on when a human life becomes a human life. Such a fundamental difference. We've had that difference in bioethics before. When is dead dead? There's been a struggle around that. There's an equally important struggle around when does a human person become a human person? For a Jew, that means how are my duties toward this person different? When do I become absolutely obligated to this individual? We can never agree really on the moral status of the human embryo. It's just we're going to have to agree to fundamentally disagree for now on that. 
but I think we could agree on our duty to justice. I'd like to end where you ended, let me just, in this wonderful essay you wrote about uh, reproductive cloning with the great title, Born Again, Faith and Yearning in the Cloning Controversy. You tell a story about being a member of a a volunteer Jewish burial society, about the death of a child. It has to do with a time many years ago when I was in graduate school and working as a nurse, and it was a volunteer burial society in which the women of the congregation prepared the bodies of women who had died for, for burial by washing them both physically, actually, washed, and then she's ritually washed and purified. And one day, it was right before Passover, it was Erev Pesach, so everyone was finishing their work and rushing off to make a Seder. I got a call, um, and so I was about to leave work, and I was asked if I could come over right then to the funeral home. And what had happened was, tragically, a, a visitor from out of town, a family from out of town, had been crossing the street, and one of their little girls, who was only four at the time, got hit by a car as she was crossing the street, running towards her father, actually, and right before their eyes was killed. And this family is, of course, bereft, and they, she was taken immediately because a, a person who was killed has to be buried before sundown, um, if at all possible. She was the tiniest person we had ever prepared, of course, the youngest person we'd ever prepared for burial. And we did something, because her mother asked, that we normally don't do, which is we allowed her mother to come and say goodbye to her, and normally that's not done. But we did it because we knew that the last her mother had seen her, she had been so broken, and we had made her, again, very beautiful in this act. And her mother thanked us and said goodbye to her. And I and all the other women there were frantic with grief. And and I knew at that point that I would have cloned her. <laughs> if I, I could have, if I could have, if I had had the technology, I would have. There, would be, there was no question that I wanted medicine to do every single thing. I didn't care if it was artificial. I didn't care if it was risky. I didn't care if it made social chaos down the road. I wanted that baby girl back. Mm. Um, and I would have, and I understood the impulse. But the mother of the child, who was a wise young woman, said to me, do what you need to do in the world, do good deeds, and study hard to bring my baby back to me. Because what we need to make the, the lost ones, the dead ones, come back is the messianic age, is the Mashiach. And she believed completely firmly in in the necessity for acts of chesed, of kindness, of loving kindness and of justice, that it was only through justice, only through a changed, radically altered world that she could get what I wanted through medicine, which was the re, was that child returned, restored. That taught me something about the dangers of, of simply restoring, simply being born again in the flesh. Um, I, don't, I don't think a story is an answer. I think it's a cautionary tale, and I think we have to listen to one another's cautionary tales when we, when we think about our future, when we think about that which will, may well be possible for us as a human society. The mother in this story is referring to the fact that in Jewish belief, the Messiah will come to a world in which justice prevails. At that time, the dead will be restored to life. And here in closing is a passage from Lori Zoloth's essay, Born Again, Faith and Yearning in the Cloning Controversy, as she ends that story. We all had to leave and make Passover, the story that begins with the death of the babies of the Jews and ends with a free people. I understand the urge for second chances, the love of the particular little face. But it is at this very moment, like her mother, that we need to look death in its terrible, beautiful white face and think of justice. As the resolute, obligated, doubtful bearers of the stories of grace and loss, we need to worry 
not about playing God or the towers we can make, nor of how we can outwit the nakedness we were born into, but about the slow work of repair that falls to us, bewildered, freed slaves holding the law in our hands, meaning not in the narrow place, but on the vast plain of the possible, set free with much to do. From Lori Zoloth's essay, Born Again, Faith and Yearning in the Cloning Controversy, Lori Zoloth is professor of medical ethics and humanities and of religion at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this program. Please write to us at mail at speakingoffaith.org. While you're there, you'll find in-depth background information about cloning and a copy of Lori Zoloth's fascinating essay, Born Again, Faith and Yearning in the Cloning Controversy. You'll also find other relevant links. And you can sign up for our email newsletter. That's speakingoffaith.org. This program was produced by Kate Moose, Brian Newhouse, and Mitch Hanley. Our web producer is Trent Gillis, associate producer Colleen Sheck. Our program coordinator is Jody Abramson. Marge Strushko is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith. Executive producer is Bill Buesenberg. And I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us again next week. Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Patrick. A New Look at a Misunderstood Saint, available on DVD. Funding is also provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Pew Charitable Trusts, sponsoring the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life to explore how religion shapes ideas and institutions, pewforum.org. The George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. And the John Templeton Foundation, Exploring the creative interface between science and religion. Audio cassettes and transcripts are available by calling 1 800 777 TEXT or by visiting our website at speakingoffaith.org. American Public Media.